0: Hi, welcome to the finale of the Esther series. You know throughout this series we have watched the invisible hand of a Sovereign God. We've watched God's sovereignty in the drama of Esther's life and it's reminded us that we can trust that God is going to be sovereign in the drama of our lives as well. Like a great conductor, you know I stand in this beautiful historic theater in downtown Mobile, Alabama. This is the Sanger theater. It was built like a hundred years ago and it's absolutely gorgeous. And so many times, I've watched it with my own eyes from this audience behind me. I've watched a conductor stand in this spot and lead an orchestra with incredible music. And what we see is that God, like a great conductor, you hear the sounds of the characters and the words of the people involved in the story. But what you don't realize is the great conductor of heaven with his sovereign hand is actually guiding the music, the tapestry of the notes and the sounds and the measures and the time piece, it's all happening because of his hand moving things along. He's the one moving the chess pieces. He's the one that when Haman thought that he had check on the situation, God says checkmate with Mordecai and Esther. And what we understand is that Satan, the great enemy of all of us, the great enemy of humanity, the great enemy of God, Satan, was behind all of these events because Satan was always trying to take out the messianic line. Uh, Jesus would be born so many years later, but it would be events like this one uh, recorded in the book of Esther that reminds us that all along Satan was trying to attack uh, the seed, uh, the one who would come from the family of Abraham who would save us all, the one who would be the second Adam. Satan was always trying to destroy that, not just here in the book of Esther, but in the future when he had King Herod tried to take the lives of all the young boys to try to take out the Messiah. We see it over and over again, even at the cross, Uh, Jesus is crucified and Satan thinks that he has check in the great chess match with God. And then with the resurrection, of course, uh, God says a checkmate. It's amazing to see the great narrative of Scripture. And when you look through the prism of the book of Esther, you can see God standing at the stand like the great conductor would and the orchestration begins. That's what we see. And another thing that we see through this story is a great reminder to us all because I don't know about you, but sometimes I can look at my life my little life, and I think, man, I'm only going to be here a little while. If I'm, if I'm healthy, maybe 75 years. If I'm really healthy, maybe 85. But that's going by really fast. I'm halfway through this thing already. And I bet some of you feel like with your mundane lives, with the little things, you're just uh, uh, taking care of the kids and cleaning up the house and going to another job every day, and you think, my life doesn't matter. But yet we see in the book of Esther that one life can make such a huge difference. Uh, So as we dive into the story today to see how the story ends and to see the finale, I want to remind you that this story has a main character and the main character is not Esther and it is not Mordecai. It's not Haman. It's not King uh, Ahasuerus. It is God himself, the one orchestrating this entire thing. Today we're going to see the power of one. We're going to see the power of little decisions that have big impacts. And today we're going to see why we have every reason to celebrate Because although Esther's story was great, it was but a foreshadowing. It was a preview to a greater story that would come later. The story that you and I can still celebrate to this day. So welcome to the finale of the book of Esther. So let's talk about the power of one for just a few moments. As we watch God orchestrating the story of Esther, we see Him using this one woman. Now He uses others, but in the end it's this one incredible woman who ends up growing into her position and stepping into her purpose, risking her life. And she is a reminder that when we individually decide to follow God, obey Him, and put everything on the line, put our yes card on the table, that big things can happen. You know, history is loaded with God using individuals who decided to be obedient to Him. In church history, we see people like Martin Luther and Calvin and Edwards and and Billy Graham and others who gave their life to God and God used them mightily. Throughout history, we also have amazing instances where one vote ended up changing an entire situation let me give you a few of those examples in 1645 one vote one vote gave Oliver Cromwell control of all of England in 1649 one vote caused Charles I of England to be executed in 1776 one single vote gave America the English language instead of the German language in 1839 one single vote elected Marcus Morton the governor of Massachusetts In 1845, one vote brought Texas into the United States, into the Union. In 1868, one vote saved President Andrew Johnson from his impeachment. And in 1875, a single vote changed France from a monarchy to a republic. Let's go on. In 1876, just one vote gave Rutherford B. Hayes the United States presidency. And in 1923, sadly, disastrously, one single vote gave Adolf Hitler control of the Nazi party that led to a dictatorship that would change the world and be a horrific, horrific situation. Throughout history, we can see where one single vote mattered. And what I want to tell you today is Esther's vote, if you will, her decision to go, I will step in to the ring. I will throw my hat into the arena. As Theodore Roosevelt, one of our presidents, said, it's not those who sit in the stands. It's the ones who get in the arena in his famous in the, man in the arena speech. It's the ones who throw their hat into the ring that say, I'm going to get in the mud and the dirt and I'm going to get on center stage. And as I stand in the middle of this beautiful stage, I'm reminded that Esther was willing to see the power of her one little life, her one decision, and it ended up saving a nation. And we're still talking about it to this day. So what I would say as we start, and as we're about to dive into the Scriptures and see her story, I would ask you, have you been looking at your life in, through too small of a lens? Have you underestimated the power of your everyday decisions, of your everyday obediences have you underestimated the impact and the legacy that your life can leave? In a world like ours where it seems like our world's overpopulated, it seems like there's a million choices, a million channels on your TV, a million ways to do a million different things, social media. It's like 24-7 news reels. We can feel so lost and small like we're a piece of sand on the desert. But I want to tell you that the Bible says every human being is unique. There's only one of you. There was only one Esther. She alone had the looks, the background, the personality to capture the attention of that king and to end up saving the nation. She alone had that opportunity. But let me tell you, every one of us have a unique story to tell with our own lives. We alone can play the role that God's given us to play. No one else can be the parent you've been called to be, the husband or wife you've been called to be, the friend you've been called to be. No one can fill your shoes. That's how uniquely God made you. So today, as we look at Esther's unique life, let us be reminded that our single life, our single decisions, our small things ends up being big things if we hand them to God. So now, let's go to the Scriptures and see how the story of Esther ends. So let's go to the scriptures now. Let's go to Esther chapter 8. If you have your Bibles or you have your devices, just go there with me. Now, let's let's be reminded of where we are in the story. Now, last week you learned that through God's perfect timing and the heroism and the bravery of both Mordecai and Esther, Esther most assuredly, uh, we have a situation where Haman, the evil prime minister of Persia, he has been hanged and executed, right? But there's still a problem. Even though Haman is out of the way, there's still a law. Remember, we taught you about the law of the Medes and the Persians. Once the king of Persia made a law and put his signet ring into it, it could not be reversed. And even though Haman, the one who perpetrated all of this evil, the one who hatched this uh, disastrous and destructive plan, even though he's dead, the law still exists. And there's a law on the books now that can't be revoked that says on this certain day that's coming fast... All of the people across all the provinces are supposed to attack the Jews and destroy them. That is on the book. So how are they going to change this? And and see, it's in these situations that we have to be reminded that God can do the impossible. So let's see what's going to happen now. Let's go to Esther chapter 8, beginning in verse 3. It says this, Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. Verse 4 says, the king held out the golden scepter towards Esther. Remember, Even though the situation has changed dramatically, he's still a brutal Persian king and she can still be killed. She risked her life yet again. We blow over that. She didn't risk her life just once. She risked her life over and over and over again for her people. At this point, we don't have a young, immature girl who's trying to figure life out. We've got a full, mature woman who's risking her life as a hero to protect her people. And once again, she risked her life because if he would have withheld that scepter, she's dead on the spot, but instead he holds out the scepter, giving her a legal audience with her, with himself. And, and she says this, So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hammedatha, the Agagite which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Now, what she's begging for is something to be done, but she doesn't know what can be done. She's not an expert in the law. She doesn't know what can happen here. And so really when you look at it, it seems like an impossible situation because the king has said the Jews have to die. They have to be attacked by everyone and it's a law of the land. It's got to happen. So what is going to happen here? Let me ask you a question. Right there where you are, whether you're on your porch or on your couch, wherever you may be joining us from, wherever you are in the world, maybe you're on a military base right now with your, with your friends watching and joining us. You may be in a cold place or a warm place, on a beach or in the mountains, but wherever you are, I bet you, like Esther and her people, I bet you have faced an impossible situation. Maybe you have gotten a word from a doctor that said, it's over, there's nothing else we can do. Maybe you've looked at a family situation and you thought, there's no way we can make this better. Maybe you've looked at your marriage and thought, there is no way we can resurrect this relationship. It is dead. But I want to remind you that we worship the God of resurrections. He's the one that brought Lazarus out of the grave after he'd been dead four days. He's the one that raised himself from the dead after three days in the grave. My friends, we serve the God who brings dead things back to life. And He works in impossible situations. Jesus once said uh, to His men in Matthew chapter 19, verses 24 through 26... They were discussing how hard it is to get into heaven. And Jesus said, for a rich man to go into heaven, it's like a camel trying to walk through the eye of a needle. It's very hard to do. And His disciples said, well, then how can any of us get to heaven? And Jesus said something powerful. He said, with man, this is impossible. Like, we can't get ourselves to heaven. But Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. And and what He was saying was, the hardest thing in the world is for the human heart to change. For the human heart to be transformed so that we can be children of God and spend eternity with Him. That's the hardest thing. That's even harder than Esther's situation. And Jesus said, things that are impossible for men are possible for God. So I want to say to you today that if God can change your heart and mind, if you're a believer in Christ, you didn't do that on your own. God transformed you. If God can take a slave girl in Jerusalem, Persia, and not Jerusalem, in the Jewish nation while they were captive in Persia and raise her up to be the queen. If he can do that, if he can give Mordecai the second-in-command position, if he can turn events the way he did in this story, then it's a reminder to us that, you know what, he can save your marriage. And He can bless your family. And He can turn the racial strife in our nation around to where we have unity. And He can help blacks and whites love one another and fight for uh, equality and love for one another. And He can rescue the unborn. And He can rescue the widow. And He can reach those who seem unreachable. And He can change the hardest of hearts. He can do those things. Why? Because with God, things that are impossible for you and I are possible. And what we see here in this story is the impossible is going to take place. Look at verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourself, so he has a plan. And he didn't just get this on his own. God has moved his heart. He says, you yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. So what's happened here? Well, the king tells them an idea that they probably hadn't thought of. You, you learned last week that the king gave the, the ring and that's where the authority is It's the same type of authority that was given to Joseph when he was second in command in Egypt. The Pharaoh gave him his signet ring. This was an ancient form of of authority. And so uh, the king here, uh, Ahasuerus, he took his signet ring away from Haman, who they executed, gives it to Mordecai. Mordecai has authority now. And the king looks at him and says, yes, you cannot change the law I made. I have made a law where all the Jews are going to be attacked on that day. But now make a new law. Make a new law that will actually uh, coincide with the same one and, and, and you do it the way you want to. And what he's basically doing is saying, you guys write a new law that will basically cancel the old one. It'll work the same way. If I put it in the law, then it has to be so. This was a brilliant plan. And it was a plan that we can only uh, surmise came from God Himself. And so in verse 9 it says, So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews. So everything he said would be done. This is amazing. Mordecai gets to write a new law that's going to cancel the old one. He gets to write a law now that's going to rescue his people rather than condemn them. The first law that was written by Haman and by uh, the king condemned the Jewish people. But now Mordecai gets an opportunity to write a new law it's going to set them free. So what did the new law say? What did Mordecai and the king and Esther, what did they come up with that would cancel out the first devastating genocidal law that they had come up with the first time. Well, it tells us in verse 11, it says, By these letters, these new laws, by these letters the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions on one day in all the provinces of King Aharis. On the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar." That's what happened there. So what happened here is that they wrote a new law. And basically he said, Yes, I can't change the old law. People can attack the Jews on that day, but now I'm making another law that the Jewish people are to rise up against their enemies. And that he's going to be able to even give them what they need to win that battle. And those letters now went out over the top of the old one. This changed the entire situation. This this gave the Jews the chance to defend themselves and they are going to and they are going to win this battle. And what we see here is this amazing story that God rewrote what should have been the end for the Jewish people. He rewrites the story and rescues them. And now what I want to show you is how this story of Esther and Mordecai and this king Ahasuerus and the Persian Empire, I want you to see the parallels between Esther's story and our story. I want you to see that Esther's story was simply a preview to the great story of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Let's check that out right now. So if we take a look at Esther chapter 9 verse 5, we see what ended up happening. Listen to what it says. It says, Because of this new law, because of these letters, when that day came, it says the Jews defeated all of their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. In other words, they won the battle. The Jewish people were not annihilated. And they struck so much fear in the nation that people began to act like they were Jews just to get on their good side. It was amazing how God changed their fortunes. Everything changed because of that second law that was written. It changed the entire situation. What I want you to see today is that there are amazing parallels to the gospel. What we would say is the entire Bible points to Jesus, including the book of Esther. We would say that Jesus is the greater Esther. Jesus is the greater king. Jesus has the greater kingdom. Jesus is the greater Mordecai. And Jesus ultimately is the greater Esther. King Xerxes, or King Ahasuerus here, he was a horrible king. If we take a look at how this points to Jesus, we find that Jesus will eventually be the only true and good king that this earth has ever seen. Even King David, widely considered the greatest king that Israel ever had, made massive mistakes and and was really a terrible king at times. And certainly King Saul, the first king of Israel, King Solomon, all the other kings, they all fell so far short. But Jesus would come and He would be the perfect king. We also see in the book of Esther a kingdom, the kingdom of Persia. And although it was large and powerful, it was a horrible place in many ways to live. It was a dictatorship where women were abused... Uh, where the poor were marginalized, where the king uh, was abusive and, and just created havoc for people, where life was not valued, uh, where people were treated horribly, and where groups of people, where ethnicities uh, were totally uh, at risk and enslaved. Well, what we know is that Jesus would bring a kingdom where people are loved, where the color of somebody's skin has no bearing on their value, where money and fame have no uh, bearing on whether someone is important or not. In the kingdom of God, it's really an upside down kingdom in many ways compared to this world. So what we know is Jesus is a greater king compared to the king of Persia and his kingdom is the greater kingdom. And then we look at Mordecai in the story and we see that Mordecai was a great foreshadowing too. Mordecai was wise and he cared for uh, his, his girl, if you will, that he raised. Uh, his cousin, but really like a daughter in many ways. And yet we see that Mordecai was not perfect and Mordecai didn't get everything right all the time. But what we find is Jesus, while Mordecai was a wonderful guide to Esther, Jesus is the perfect shepherd for us. Mordecai did his best to guide Esther, but there were limitations to how he could guide her. He could not go uh, all the way in through the city gates to get to her on his own. But Jesus, there's nothing that can separate us from His love. And Jesus guides us forward and the Bible tells us He's a shepherd that guides His sheep and He leads us to lie down by uh, pastures and He leads us to water when we're thirsty and He protects us from falling. He has his hand on us and cares for us. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter to cast all of our anxieties on Jesus because he cares for us so much. So we see that Jesus is the greater greater Mordecai. All of these stories and characters were pointing to him. So now we come to Esther. Now Esther is the heroine of this story in so many ways, right? She was awesome. She stood in the gap. She did so many great things. But if you remember in the beginning of the story, she was not willing initially to relate to and identify with her own people. And as long as she did not identify with them, she could not save them. It took her stepping into their shoes and admitting she was a Jew and going to the king and risking her life and telling him that, hey, these are my people that you're about to destroy and you're going to destroy me with them. It took her standing in their place, if you will, representing them before the king before there was any chance of them being saved. Now, while she did this in an earthly way, what Jesus would do for us is far greater. Because see, the first law that was passed by King Ahasuerus and Haman was disastrous and condemning to the Jewish people. What we understand is that the law of God condemns us. Except King Ahasuerus and Haman, they were evil in their intentions. But God is perfectly righteous with His law. The problem is we sinned against God and the law of God stands condemning us as sinners. And there is no hope for us. The Jews had no hope on their own. They could not save themselves. They were stuck. And when that law was passed, there was no revoking that. It was done. And let me tell you, the law has passed a judgment on you and I. Apart from Christ, we are condemned in our sin. Listen to the book of Ezekiel 1820. The law says this, the soul who sins shall die. That's irrevocable. There's no ambiguity about that. And that is the sentence on our lives. Uh, But Esther, she saved her people from an earthly end. But Jesus did far more. Jesus saved us uh, from, uh, let me tell you, an eternal damnation, an eternal place. And, And let me make this clear. Even though Esther was able to save her people from death, it's not like they all became best buddies with the king. They still lived in a brutal empire and though things got better for them, they were still under his dictatorship. But Jesus brings us, when He uh, rewrites the law for us, He brings us into an eternal relationship with God and makes us a part of the family. Makes us a part of the family of the King. It's incredible what Jesus has done for us. In the same way we are doomed and the Jewish people were doomed by that law, we are doomed by the law of God condemning us as sinners until a new law was written. Until Jesus came. And Jesus instituted a new law. Let's go to Romans 8, 5 through 9 and see just what the new law of God says that revokes, that overtakes, that replaces the old, that that fulfills it and gives us a new way. Let's check that out right now. So what does the new law of God say? What does the new covenant of Jesus say to us? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 really says it well. It says, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Esther identified with her people before the king and represented them and she saved them. And you know what Jesus did for us? He became sin for us. He comes to earth, Emmanuel, God with us, becomes a man, wraps himself in human flesh and he takes our place on the cross. We call that the substitutionary atonement. And because Jesus took our place on the cross, we now are in the family of God and our, our salvation and our freedom has been won in Christ. We are not in shackles and in slavery anymore. We belong to God and we can celebrate that today. So Esther points us right at Jesus. The old law condemns us. But the new law in Christ has set us free. And Jesus didn't do away with the law. He fulfilled it for us, living a perfect life. And then He died a horrific death in our place. See, Esther never had to actually give her life for her people. She just risked her life. Jesus didn't just risk His life. He gave His life for you and I. And Esther uh, kept her people from being annihilated. But Jesus did more than just keeping us from dying. He gave us life and brought us into the family. And we now are not just servants of the King. We're family members of the King. We're sitting at the table with the king. That is what Jesus has done for us. So like every part of the Bible, the book of Esther points us to the greater one, the perfect one, the greater king, the greater kingdom, the greater Mordecai, the greater Esther. We celebrate Jesus today for what He has done for us. Now let's take a look at how the Jews in Persia celebrated what happened through the deliverance that God brought to them. So the Jews to this day still celebrate a feast and a festival that was instituted to commemorate what happened with Esther and Mordecai and the king. When this all went down and the Jews won and they had their freedom and they were so excited and they were uh, released from the fear of death and annihilation, they did a feast and it was called the Feast of Purim. Let's read about it now. In Esther chapter 9 beginning in verse 18 it says, "...but the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the thirteenth day as well as on the fourteenth, and on the fifteenth of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness." Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and joy. This is incredible. They celebrated because their sorrow had been turned to joy. Their mourning had been turned to dancing. And that's what we celebrate as well. Uh, See, Esther and Mordecai, they won the day. And their people were saved from annihilation. But Jesus won the day for us. And we as Christians today, we celebrate. And while they were given a festival to commemorate what happened for them, we have been given a feast A supper, if you will, to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And today, to end the Esther series, since Esther was pointing all of us to Jesus, we see clearly what she could just see dimly. We today don't just celebrate Esther and her great story, but we celebrate the one who she pointed to. So today, to end this series, we want to invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us. And over the next few moments, I want you to know why the Lord's Supper is so important to us. The Lord's Supper does a few things. First of all, we commemorate the way they did with the Feast of Purim. We commemorate what Jesus has done for us. We have symbols. They had symbols. They feasted. They had the wine. They had the food. They gave gifts. Well, we have symbols as well, too. We have the bread and the wine symbolizing what Jesus did for us. The rescue that He gave us through His blood and through His body. We commemorate these things. These things have been consecrated for us. Uh, Not only that, we anticipate that not only will we symbolize it now, but we will one day feast with Him together since we are a part of His family. So we commemorate and we anticipate and then we do celebrate. Maybe you've never connected celebration with the Lord's Supper, but do you know the correct way to say it is that we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Why? Because it truly is a celebration. Because the Lord's Supper commemorates that thing that Jesus accomplished for us that set us free. The law condemned us the way it did the Jews in the Old Testament. It condemned us and we've been set free because Jesus fulfilled the law for us and you and I are free. So today we have our feast, our festival. So for the next few moments, we invite you, if you're a believer, to join us in this time of commemorating, anticipating, and celebrating what Jesus did for us. And remember, remember, One life obedient to God can change everything. And that's what Esther did. And the same God who got in the middle of her drama will get in the middle of your drama. And today, if you're not a believer, you can be. You can receive all of these things we're about to celebrate through the Lord's Supper. You can celebrate those things with us as well by giving your life to this King who came to save you, who came to rescue you, who came to set you free. The same God who got in the middle of the drama that Esther was in. It's the same God who will get in your drama and mine and change our lives. So we celebrate today the Jesus that Esther pointed to, the great king, the greater king, the greater kingdom, the ultimate savior, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ himself. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Esther.